My parents had no idea what to do. I mean, imagine you wake up one morning and the paper hits your door and your son's one of the headlines as being a spy arrested in Venezuela for trying to start a civil war. This is Convicted Across Borders, a podcast co-produced by Focus Features and LA Times Studios brand team and funded by Focus Features in support of the film Stillwater. I'm your host, Marsha Clark. I've spent decades as a prosecutor and a defense attorney in the United States, but each year, more than 3,000 Americans are imprisoned outside the United States. Many are wrongfully convicted, and many are told they will never return home. Imagine what you would do in that horrific situation. Who could you count on to come to your rescue? In this five-part series, we're hearing real-life, first-hand accounts of American citizens whose international journeys turned into epic nightmares. Tim Tracy was looking for more than a story. He wanted an adventure that would hopefully lead to finding himself along the way. In 2012, Tim traveled to Venezuela to make a documentary about the political division that was gripping the country. He knew little Spanish and almost nothing about the country and its politics. At first, he and his producing partner, Ricardo Corda, were excited by the risks and dangers they encountered. Tim believed, naively he admits, their documentary would help bring together the nation in turmoil, maybe even the world. What he didn't expect was that he would become the focus. In April 2013, Tim was arrested and accused by the Venezuelan government of plotting to incite a civil war. Tim was taken to prison as Venezuela's newly elected president, Nicolas Maduro, announced on TV that he personally ordered the arrest. This is Tim's story. My name is Tim Tracy. I'm originally from Gross Point, Michigan. I'm 43 years old. I live now in Mexico City, and I have a small barbecue business called Bad Hombre Barbecue. I was the youngest of four siblings, and so I was always desperate for attention. And I am a risk taker. And depending upon the year, at one point could have been accused of being a hopeful, romantic optimist. Tim, Tim is one of a kind, I think. Tim has a very large personality. He can be in a room with 15 people and he's talking the whole time and everybody's being entertained the whole time. Tim is a romantic, a dreamer, an idealist, uh, very passionate about everything he does. And I would say a little bit Don Quixote-esque. That's Tim's friend, Ricardo. My name is Ricardo Corda, and I'm 38 years old. I live in Miami, and I'm a filmmaker. I know Tim Tracy from way back. I went to Georgetown uh, for a little bit, and that's where we met. And then, you know, he went into acting and producing, and uh, he was living in L.A., me too, so he grew into a beautiful friendship. Ricardo is from Venezuela, and he always wanted to one day tell a story about his country. Ricardo felt Tim would be an amazing partner for the project. Tim was on board for other reasons. I decided to go to Venezuela because I was at a point where I wasn't happy with the direction of my life. 
I was 32, 33 years old, still hopeful that I would do something special in life. But it wasn't Ricardo who would convince Tim to go to Venezuela. My brother was getting married in Dominican Republic, and uh, Tim came. He fell in love completely with this Venezuelan girl. And I remember that he spent the whole night uh, in the beach with this girl, and the girl was a student and was telling him you know, about Chavez and the whole situation in Venezuela, the political climate, and how the students were you know, trying to stand up to the government. And Tim fell in love with the story, with the girl. I was enchanted by her, and I think, to make a long story short, told her that I would save her country by making a documentary and exposing Hugo Chavez as a fraud. Is it most things I've done in life, the idea was always more enchanting than the actual reality. And so I never really had a clear idea of how I was going to save the country. Well, that's one hell of a pickup line. I never thought that he was going to say, OK, I'll be there in a week, which is what happened. So in a week, Tim was in my house in Venezuela, and we didn't have any outline. I mean. We didn't know much about Venezuela. That, that trailer that he did was nothing. So he just came with nothing in hand, no crew, no nothing. Nothing but Tim's Don Quixote-type journey in mind. Tim was inspired by a girl and by the potential of who he thought he could be. Not knowing the language, the country, or what exactly to do when he arrived, that was all part of the allure for Tim. I was happy to be very much off my own reservation and exploring something dangerous, something different for the very first time. It wouldn't take long for the charm of Tim's journey to quickly wear off. After all this effort that I put in to impressing this girl, you know, I'm going to save her country. The night I get down there, I found out she's left me for an investment banker. Talk about a rude awakening. I was left forced to have to focus on doing this documentary. Now, directing all of his attention to the documentary, Tim set out to interview everyone on the political spectrum, from student protesters and everyday citizens to leaders on both sides, which was very dangerous given the anti-American sentiment in the country. So I had to help him with the Spanish, with the production, and with the fact that this is a really dangerous country at this point, one of the most dangerous countries in the world. And... Tim is an American, which is the enemy of the state. He was the enemy of a lot of people just by being American. Tim is also bigger than most Venezuelans, taller, so he would stand out wherever he, he would go. He has a little bit the look of a little, like a Marine, a little bit. Matt Damon type of thing, actually. But that wouldn't stop Tim. He used his charm and social skills to make friends and get new access for his documentary. One night, outside the Ecuadorian embassy, there was this anti-gringo protest, and I looked outside, and there was a very animated, radical, anti-imperio protest going on. And in the midst of it was this guy who looked like Che Guevara. And later I came to find his name was Che Venezolano. But he's a beautiful cut of a figure. I mean, he was in his army fatigues. He had a chiseled jawline. He looked like he was out of Hollywood casting. And I approached him, and it turns out he was a very famous Chavista, a Chavista that had blown up a TV station. 
He was the radical extremist that you could picture, but he had a soft spot, and that was he loved Freddie Mercury from Queen. Tim discovered that while he loved Freddie Mercury, he didn't know what he was singing. So Tim went online and translated the lyrics into Spanish for him. And from that point on, called me his único amigo gringo. And so gaining his friendship, gaining his protection, I was now able to enter into the most dangerous, radical Chavista barrios without fear of getting kidnapped or killed. With increased access came increased risk. And although they were getting amazing footage, Ricardo began to get concerned. Tim was having a journey. This was his project before Tim was a little lost in life. And this started to give him a purpose, and you could see it. I think there were many times that I would tell Tim, listen, you're going too far. Please, please stop. Please think about this. It is a different law. <laughs> it's a different society. Tim is definitely fish out of water. Tim doesn't speak Spanish, so even a, a slight misunderstanding can get you killed. As Tim continued to push the limits, he started having run-ins with the local authorities. And so the moment I started to get in deeper with the Chavistas, and I was loving it. I mean, these guys are running around with guns. I'm not a war correspondent, but I sure feel like one. I mean, there's a certain amount of kind of wish fulfillment that's going on, which I very clearly was loving the hell out of. But I first got into trouble when I was with these Chavistas, with Che and his band, and we went to go see Hugo Chavez speak at the last campaign rally that he held in the election of 2012. Chavez was an absolute rock star, and I was determined to get backstage. And I went to the lady who was handling the press passes, and literally five minutes before Chavez arrives, I'm taken to the back street with their secret service. I'm put on the ground, and they've got massive guns, and they're reviewing my footage, trying to see what the hell I've been filming for the past three hours. I said to the guy, I said, listen, I understand I'm in deep shit, but could you just give me five minutes with Chavez? <laughs> Tim didn't get his five minutes with Chavez. Instead, he was arrested and questioned by the Sabine, Venezuela's top intelligence agency. He was let go after only 24 hours, but Tim kept pushing his luck. I was an American. When you're an American in these countries, you are afforded a certain level of protection by virtue of your citizenship. They're not gonna mess with an American, at least not in the same way that they would one of their own citizens. So there's a certain air of invincibility that I rightly or wrongly took on by virtue of being an American citizen, by virtue of the fact that they kept letting me go, and by virtue of the fact that I really believed I was saving the country. I really believed I was going to get these two people together. I was doing it. I was the only one who was talking to both sides. Tim felt he could continue to charm his way out of any dangerous situation he found himself in. Until he couldn't. Up until that point, I had this game I would play. Whenever I was detained, I would always wait a little bit, and then I would ask one of the agents for a cigarette. And I was kind of convinced in my own way that them giving me a cigarette, us sharing a cigarette, and befriending them and then ultimately them letting me go, realizing there's nothing to worry about with this gringo. 
When I was finally detained the last time, this is after Maduro had won a very contested election and there was unrest around the country. There was protests, many of which I was filming. I knew something was different when my little tactics like, hey, let me get a cigarette, weren't working. Nobody wanted to give me any cigarettes. Nobody wanted to talk to me. On April 24th, 2013, Tim was planning a short trip back to Los Angeles when he was stopped and arrested at the airport outside of Caracas. They grabbed me, and then they took me down to the basement, and the entire atmosphere was different this time. I was taken from the airport, I was taken to the intelligence headquarters in Eliocoide, and nobody talked to me. Nobody, nobody wanted to talk to me. And they even, I think, brought in two people who had asked me questions in the customs line. They'd brought them in for three hours of interrogation just because they talked to me. So there's a certain amount of, I know that this isn't good. What Tim would not find out until days later was that amid the rising tensions and claims of a stolen election, the controversial and newly elected president of Venezuela, Nicolas Maduro, went on television calling Tim a spy a foreign agent plotting to kill him and undermine the government. For the first three days, when I was detained, I had no idea how big of a deal it was. I was convinced that I could still talk my way out of it. After three days, Tim was awakened in his cell at six in the morning and asked to sign a document. I was convinced, like, oh my God, what is this? Is this a confession? I'm not going to sign this. I'm like, you have to sign it. I'm like, no, I'm not going to sign it. Like, you have to sign it? or it's gonna be really bad for you. Back and forth went on. And finally I signed the document. What the document was, it was a document that acknowledged that I was gonna be arraigned on charges of terrorism, on charges of inciting an insurrection, on financing terrorism, all that stuff. And I was taken out to the lobby area of the intelligence headquarters. And outside, it was ridiculous. It was like a military parade. There were two tanks. There were flatbeds full of special operations soldiers. There were SUVs, bulletproof SUVs. It was, it was a full-on caravan, motorcycles. And it dawned on me, this was the caravan that was going to take me to court. And so at that point, there is this kind of like, Toto, you're not in Kansas anymore feeling. We're like, what the hell is going on? But you're so, still in such shock. I asked the lady, the Fiscalia, which is the DA, was there. And she said, Timothy, I want to let you know we're taking you to court right now. These are very serious charges. Would you like to make a phone call? And I said, yes. And I was still processing everything. I was still very much in shock. It was six in the morning. And I call my mom, call my house in Michigan. And I'm thinking that she has no idea what's going on. I'm thinking she might be worried that she hasn't heard from me in three days. But the first thing she says when I say, hey, mom, and I, my voice started to break up, and she said, oh, God, Timmy. <laughs> she said, what have you done? <laughs> this had been all over the news for three days. It had been an international story, and the last person to find out about it was me. I remember just saying to my mom, I'm, I'm sorry. And then they handcuffed me, and they walked me into one of those SUVs, and I was surrounded by these huge, badass soldiers in like Afghan gray camo, big guns, 
very serious on the job. And these guys get into tanks and we all move towards the courthouse and I'll be damned. I mean, you would think if you were in the situation that you would be terrified, but I'm not gonna lie. I was like, this is pretty damn cool. <laughs> I mean, I've never been this important. I've never had this much attention. And I don't say this to be trite and to be superficial. You're filled with so much adrenaline and so much shock because of the surreal nature of what's happening. You know you're not a terrorist. You know you didn't incite a rebellion, but all you wanna do is do something special with your life. And for a moment, you can be forgiven to think I've arrived. I'm really doing something special. If they have gotta bring two tanks to take me to court, I must be doing something special. And then you pinch yourself and you're like, no, 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 this is really bad, this is really bad. But there is this kind of mix of like, wow, this is badass. And this is really the scariest moment of my life. Tim made the decision to change his life by going to Venezuela, only to make a few wrong choices and end up locked away. We spoke with Stillwater director Tom McCarthy about choices made by the characters in the film and their consequences. I think all of the characters in this movie are confronted with choices and options, and they have to decide for themselves. And as we've all done in our lives, sometimes we make the right choice and sometimes we don't. This movie explores not just those decisions, but the consequences beyond them. <laughs> and, and sometimes we're doing what we think is best for us or our family or our community or even our country. But is it really what's best for everybody involved? And in some cases, it's just not so. See the Focus Features film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon. Stillwater is now playing only in theaters. Now we return to Tim's story. In Venezuela, you're not arrested, you're kidnapped. Most of the people that I was incarcerated with, especially in the Elicoide prison, most of them were there for two years or more and they never had their arraignment in court. Or they had an arraignment and they'd been postponed, but they certainly hadn't gone through the judicial process. They were just in waiting in prison until if and when they could find the money to bribe the judges or bribe the fiscal to get out. This time was different. This time it was Maduro, the controversial newly elected president of Venezuela, who had ordered his arrest for the whole world to see. Who has experience with that? My parents had no idea what the hell to do. There was no playbook they could draw from. And they had everybody in the world offering their services. Somebody offered the service to, uh, I think it was like a $200,000 a month retainer. And they had no experience in Venezuela. A lot of people start calling when you get arrested, saying, no, this is the way to do it, otherwise your son's gonna be dead. I hate to think about how hard those first few weeks were for not just my mom and my dad, but for my sister and my brothers and everyone. Um, it's not a situation I would wish upon anyone. At first, Ricardo remembers, Tim just wanted to interview the other political prisoners. He still didn't really get the severity of the situation. He wanted to protect the documentary because at this point, remember, his life is his documentary right now. So he wanted to know that everything is safe, the footage is safe. Ricardo, on the other hand, was struggling along with Tim's family and anyone they could find to help get Tim out. The family's talking to me 
And the family was talking to me, trying to figure out what we're going to do. They are worried because they think that Tim is not taking this seriously, that he doesn't understand the danger. For Tim, after months of feeling like the star of his own movie, he now realized his story may not have a happy ending. I'm sitting there in a cell, and it was a very nondescript cell. smelled like urine. It was pretty filthy. And I'm hearing these guys banging on their cells, and they do it because it's Latins, they have rhythm, so it's just kind of like, it's not like, dang, dang, dang. it's like, you know what I mean, like, they're, it's almost like they're dancing, but they're singing, mata el gringo, mata el gringo, mata el gringo, which is kill the gringo. I don't know if that's in my head, I don't know if they really did it, I know it was very real to me, and at that point, I really did collapse. After being there for eight months, I just let it all out, and I started to bawl. I started to cry. And I, for the first time, it dawned on me that my stupidity might result in me never leaving this cell. As Tim realized that he now faced real consequences for the cat and mouse game he thought he was playing, he was given a gift from the most unexpected of places. One of the soldiers who had been seated next to me during the ride to the courthouse, his name was Ephraim, he saw me crying. He grabbed my attention, he said, gringo, come here. And I got up and I was really embarrassed to have been crying in front of this guy. And he said, todo eso, all of this, it's a show. Cuarenta días, tienes que esperar cuarenta días. You have to wait for 40 days and then you'll go home. And thinking of that, retelling that story gives me goosebumps because that was the kindest act of decency that anybody had ever given me is a guy who worked for the regime, who saw a fellow human being really devastated, broken up. He said, don't, don't let this overcome you. This beautiful moment of human solidarity allowed Tim to see a light at the end of the tunnel. From that moment on, Tim had a new goal ahead of him, Stay strong for 40 days. In Venezuela, once charges have been presented, the prosecution is given 40 days to determine whether the evidence merits the charges and wants to pursue the case and go to court. So we leave the courthouse. We head back to the same place that I'd been for three days. But now I'm introduced into the actual prison population. And the Heliocoide prison was... Actually, as far as prisons go, one of the more comfortable prisons one could find themselves. We had a gym. We had a ping pong table. Many of the inmates had TVs with, with satellite, while at the same time still living with the fear that you may not go home. You may never leave there. Throughout Tim's incarceration, being an American and the privilege that had afforded him compared to his Venezuelan prison mates, was no longer as comforting to him as it had been before. There were people there that had committed no crime, but had been there for two more years, some as long as 10 to 12. And you could see it in their eyes. You could see the emptiness in their eyes because they knew that there was no one coming for them. You know, I had Uncle Sam coming for me. And so... Most of the communications I had with people was count your lucky stars for being so lucky that you're an American because if you weren't, you'd never get out of here. 
And that's a hard pill to swallow. And I was always aware of that. But that didn't make me feel any better about it. In fact, sometimes it made me feel worse. I wanted to be a good American. I didn't, it was hard for me to look upon myself as a good American when I put myself, my family, and, and my country in that situation. Tim would learn that being an American in a foreign country will only give you so much protection for so long. Everything changed for Tim the morning he was transferred to El Rodeo Prison. El Rodeo Prison has to be, at the time, one of the three most dangerous prisons in all of Venezuela. A month before I got there, the National Guard tried to retake the prison because the prisoners had decapitated a National Guard soldier. And the National Guard felt that they'd taken it a step too far. So they said, all right, we're going to disarm the prisoners. And they tried to, and they failed. They couldn't disarm the prisoners. They disarmed one section of the prison, which is the one I was sent to. The other two, the prisoners won the battle. From the moment I arrived at El Rodeo, there was a very clear understanding that I wasn't as important as I previously thought I was. You're sent to your cell, and your cell doesn't have a toilet as a whole, which has not been cleaned. It's filled with flies. There's no bed, there's just a cement slab. You know, a bunch of vermin running around regularly. You're acutely aware that you're no longer important. Tim was no longer receiving star treatment, and he was trapped in what felt like a prison masquerading as a Venezuelan purgatory, hearing heaven and hell on either side of him. What was hardest was that now I was in a real prison, surrounded by these two kind of sections that the National Guard didn't enter. The prisoners had the guns. Prisoners threw parties. Prisoners killed people. It was a Wild West, you know, your classic locked up abroad prison. And they had salsa parties every night. And I know this sounds trite again, but that was the worst, is I'm getting attacked by mosquitoes, I can't go to sleep, and there's a party going on next door, and I can't go. Tim then received serious death threats. He was now questioning whether he would survive another day, let alone 40, or however long his sentence would ultimately be. An order had come down from the National Guard to take care of me, to the gang leader, they call him Pranis, to the Pran in the prison, that they were going to come and take care of me that night. That they were waiting for the director of the prison to leave so he could wash his hands of it, but he'd gone now, he had just left, and so at some point tonight after check-in, I was to expect some visitors. And for me, it was, it was jarring because it ran contrary to everything that I'd come to believe since that first conversation with Efrian, where he said, just be strong for 40 days, be tough, and you get to go home. In very little time, I was convinced that it was in the best interest of the government to have me killed. I had a panic attack. I prayed to God, did all the things that you can imagine one would if you think your hours are numbered. And when 10 o'clock came around and nobody came, I went to bed. I slept. That was the only night I actually slept because I, I think I was just exhausted. But I woke up the next morning and I was a different person. I was full of rage. I did more push-ups. I danced in place. I played tennis in place. I did boxed in place. They really started to think I was crazy, trying to kind of get ready, get fit for somebody to walk in my cell. So at least if I'm going down, I'm going to take one of them with me. 
And for the next four or five days, that was my ritual. When someone finally came to Tim's cell, it was to be released, and not a moment too soon. I remember the morning that I was released, the morning before they came and got me, they hadn't been giving me my medicine. And, and I was screaming, I was banging on the cell, gotta get a guard's attention. And I finally got his attention, they came in, and, he, and I started barking. I mean, I was really, you know, I lost it. I think if I'd stayed there any longer, I, I, I don't know if I would have made it out because I probably would have put myself in a situation and gotten in trouble. On June 5th, 2013, after more than 40 days in prison, Tim was released. Unbeknownst to me behind the scenes, there was a congressman from Massachusetts named Bill Delahunt who had been approached through a wonderful man named Paul Salucci, former governor of Massachusetts. And Delahunt was someone who had worked with Chavez and Maduro politically. There had been a thing called the Boston Group that was trying to uh, distribute oil economically to the poor in, in New England. And Paul Salucci was a family friend and thought that Bill Delahunt might be the one person that could help broker a solution because of his proximity to Maduro from many years ago. And he was right. Bill Delahunt was able to create a kind of backdoor channel to the what's called the Charge d'Affaires in Washington, because they didn't have an ambassador, but they had a Charge d'Affaires. Tim was now free, but what he'd forgotten was how terrifying a freedom can be when you got there by trying to escape from your own reality. The hardest thing for me was that I wasn't as important <laughs> anymore. I know it sounds again trite, but I had been down there, put my life at risk for eight months with the idea that what I was doing was going to change the world. And it was interrupted. So then when I was actually expelled, I'll never forget, I was flying home in the middle seat and coach between two people and I was being sandwiched between them. And it was really just flew contrary to the whole kind of fantasy that I'd held about how I would go home. And just being a, being, nobody recognized me. Nobody knew who I was. I wasn't being watched anymore. Nobody was recording my conversation. It was a huge shock to me. And I literally just had a breakdown on the plane. I started crying. In a sense, that reassimilation to the world where you're not the center of the universe was the hardest thing for me. Tim struggled returning to life without the romantic fantasy he'd so desperately wanted. I remember that when I saw Tim for the first time, I was shocked at how he looked physically. He was incredibly skinny. He was like in the movies, very, very skinny, shaved head, and a roughness to him. After thousands of hours of footage, three arrests, and more than 40 days in prison, Tim's story was coming to an end, and he wasn't ready for it to be over. We will always be brothers, and it was an amazing experience. But then when, creatively, when the documentary just didn't start to, to happen, because it was just too much bumping heads, he did not want to finish this project, because then what, where is he going to go? What is he going to do next? 
this is his project. It's been his life for a long time. And he, he got to that conclusion after a few years. He realized, okay, I'm sabotaging this whole thing unconsciously. If it doesn't come out, no, it wasn't worth it at all. Tim simply couldn't find it in himself to finish the documentary. Thank God I never finished it because the premise about which I set off on doing it and while the people I met were amazing, what I was pursuing was just, it wasn't something I think on its face, on alone, it was going to be able to help people learn something meaningful. I think if you maybe looked at my story as a whole and what I did, maybe there's a deeper meaning. But what I was trying to do down there was just more of a symptom of a condition that I need to have enough distance from to recognize what it was and let it go. Next time on Convicted Across Borders. After asking for unpaid wages from her employer in Abu Dhabi, a Kansas City mother of three is arrested and faced with a terrifying prison sentence. In the movies, they make it out like as long as you get to the embassy, as long as you crawl across the gate in the stairs of their building, you're safe. And that is the furthest thing from the truth. And that, to me, was the biggest shock of all. Convicted Across Borders was created on behalf of Focus Features by L.A. Times Studios and Treefort and does not reflect the views of the Los Angeles Times, nor does it involve the editorial or reporting staffs of the Los Angeles Times. Executive producers are Kelly Garner and Lisa Ammerman. Line producer is Oscar Guido. Written and produced by Matthew Kugler. Casting producer, Julie Burke. Tom Monahan is our senior audio engineer and sound supervisor with production and editing by Jasper Leake. With additional production help from Tim Schauer, Haley Mandelberg, and Justin Washington. I'm Marcia Clark. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to raise awareness and get the word out so more people can hear these powerful and real stories. And be sure to watch Focus Features new film, Stillwater, directed by Tom McCarthy and starring Matt Damon. Stillwater is now playing only in theaters.